Hello, and welcome to episode eight of what we should probably call season one or series one <laughs> of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are rambling. We are rambling yes. because we are wrapping up our initial, our initial, uh, yeah, as we say, our initial season of, of podcasting. We, we started out with Karen recommending three books to me, and I recommended three books to her. And, Three uh, authors, because we have short stories. That's true. That's true. It's really more authors than than mm-hmm. particular books, and um, and now we have discussed each of them individually, and and perhaps we've even found some some method to our madness in in what we've been recommending to each other. I guess, I guess maybe well part of it is that any writer or any any writer of either fiction or nonfiction always tries to find narrative connections. And things that may appear to have no connection. Well, and, and I what, do, I do find an arc. I do find an arc in all this. Yeah, and it's what reviewers do too. We try and take the 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 works that we read and put them into a broader context of of the field and the history of the field as much as possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And and as you say, uh, for instance, uh, it seemed like uh, the theme of religion in science fiction stood out, jumped out a little bit more than either of us would have anticipated when we both. It, um, was a little bit of a shock. I mean, there were some for which it was obvious by virtue of the particular theme of the short story, and definitely, of course, the sparrow. That's is just about all. All of that is is about religion. But at the same time, we found that the the books, the the stories that had the most in them to discuss tended to lean towards very heavy, heavy either religious or philosophical questions. So okay. that does kind of make you wonder again when you define what is literature and you talk about layers and being able to find um, different, different um, what was the term you used? Different literature. Come on, you have the, the marvelous re- quote. Readings? Thank you, yes. You get your different readings. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm losing it. It's the last one and I'm losing it. Um, you get your different readings, especially when you have these deep questions to ponder. Right, although maybe we should back up. So when we first started bandying about the idea of doing a podcast, um, mm-hmm. what what was going through your mind when you picked the three authors that you picked? Well, mainly I wanted something that was going to be fairly accessible, but also with a hint of challenge. I didn't want to underestimate you. Fair enough. But I was very curious to see how someone who didn't have that background of Caribbean society, Caribbean history, would take on books that were, to me, transparent in particular ways, but might not be as transparent to you. Mm -hmm. So as for the particular works and authors that I chose, I tried to both give a sense of sort of from easy to hard, Although, of course, I didn't quite get that. The one I thought was going to be hardest is the one I think you found easy in a way because you found the science fiction hook. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also wanted to find uh, a sense of, well, I, I did maybe want to find a sense of region, although I did end up with two Jamaican authors. I had one Guyanese author, so it wasn't just choosing all one from one country, which does make a difference. And also very carefully not choosing all from one era because right. middle hopes are... You know, we're talking the fifties, sort of the the the, the early um, Renaissance, the the first Renaissance of Caribbean literature, you could say, with the Selvins and Lammings and so forth. And then, uh, 
what I liked about Erna Broadbur is in a way she almost spanned that because she she goes a little bit back in the you know, 70s and so forth and then she comes forward in the contemporary era and then then finally you have Cordella Forbes who's very much a contemporary writer so I, I liked I liked the fact that you did even though it was just three you were getting as as good a spread as you could get well geographically sort of Guyana and then Jamaica being your north and your south but also time-wise and that and, and also the the ease and difficulty so that was that was what I was thinking about Okay. I don't think I was anywhere near that in depth when you asked me for, for recommendations. I had, I had <laughs> well, read... they know why you chose the Egan. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't. In fact, I think I, I, I might have actually backed away from recommending Egan, except you, you were saying, look, you're the expert on Egan. You have to tell me yeah, what Egan to yeah. read. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I thought, you know, here's a golden moment. If you have an expert, you use the expert, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, I had, co- you know, completely coincidentally read The Sparrow just this past spring. So we were mm-hmm. we were talking about this in the early summer, I think. So it was still fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. And, that really- and I had I'd heard uh, Gary, um, Gary, Gary K. Wolf refer to it more than once on okay. Hood Street. And it piqued my interest. Right, right. And um, and having read that, I mean, it, it exemplified so much for me of what science fiction could do. And it had some strengths that a lot of science fiction, contemporary science fiction, doesn't. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That I thought it was really valuable to read. Um, and then, of course, Ted Chang. I mean, if somebody asked me about contemporary mm-hmm. SF, I'm, I'm always going to say Ted Chang. <laughs> well, I was I was so happy when you mentioned his name because first of all, uh, we have the, sh- the same publisher. We're both published by Small Beer Press, mm-hmm. and I had actually met him at ICVA, right? And and was hugely embarrassed to you know I, I just tried to make sure the conversation never got around to me having to say yes. And by the way, I've not read a single one of your works. <laughs> so oh, so there there was mind. that. Sorry, he wouldn't mind. He wouldn't mind. I mean, no. he's a very nice guy. <laughs> he's pretty mellow about that, I think. Yes. But I, I had heard so much about him, uh, his 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 writing. I, I mean, well, basically, I think everyone that we chose had some level of recognition, whether it was from awards, whether it was from people pointing them and saying, "Well, you know, this person is seminal. This person is is key of this era." They they all stood head and shoulders above the usual crowd in some way. And and I think that's one of the reasons why I was saying, oh yes, he's he's definitely going to fit into what we've chosen here. Right, right. So now my question is this: I know what I was thinking of, and I I know that there were some things even in the in the Caribbean SF arc that I saw in retrospect that surprised me. But what did you get out of it when you read those three authors? The Caribbean authors. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I was surprised at how accessible they were, um, especially the first two. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was I loved the the rhythms of the language, especially in Broadbur and Forbes. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. absolutely loved that. Um, I will say, in I enjoyed the Middle Holzer a lot, but in retrospect, it seems. Maybe perhaps a little middling? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue with that at all. Okay, okay that's I interesting. Mean, Let me a, hear you. It's a good ghost story. Yes. And, and there it sits. It's a good ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rainmaker's Mistake, 
felt much more innovative. Yes, it felt yes. much. More, there was a lot more depth there. Mm-hmm. And yes, then, um, and of course, I I will firmly admit I have not grokked. You know, I've not <laughs> gotten my arms all the way around the the Cordella Forbes ghosts. Uh, there was a lot more, probably a lot more subtext there that was going either over or under me. Yes, yes, yes. I can appreciate that. Yeah, and that and that makes sense though. Well, I have to say, uh, I have not read enough of Middle Holster to make some kind of firm judgment. But I remember when we were doing the Middle Holster podcast, we noticed that when you read his work, it would it would kind of trot along very much like your generic thriller. Yeah. And then he would suddenly slip into this kind of poetic expansion on the jungle. And he'd go like, whoa, what's this, literature? And he'd collect himself and kind of trot along a right, further. Right. So, so you did get the impression sometimes that he was almost holding himself back and, mm-hmm. and slipping. And I think that um, I, I have, I've, I've, been, I've been reading, I managed to read another work of his recently, a novella, which I won't go into in detail at all because you've not read it. Mm-hmm. But when I read that one, I thought to myself, you know, even this one, although you look at it and you're like, oh, this is definitely the author of My Bones and My Flute. At the same time, it seemed to have a little additional set of layers to it. So in terms of what he was capable of, but what he chose to produce then, perhaps for a particular market, I found that kind of interesting. But as you say, it, it, does, it does show that that particular work, when you kind of put it next to The Rainmaker's Mistake and next to Ghost, it becomes a little unfair. So, but I, I, did, I did choose it as a kind of an easy in, as the most accessible work. Well, and of course, you can, you know, if you wanted to take a, a fairly trite look at the at the series of three you've got in the middle holzer being literally haunted by the past and Mm -hmm. then uh broadbur starting in the past and bridging to the future or at least to the present yes and then uh cordella forbes mostly starting with the present and then bridging to the future yes yes. i mean so it's a really i mean honestly it's beautiful (laughs) that that is the one that struck me more or less later that was the one where I looked back and I said oh happy accident because yeah, yeah. <laughs> no that, that, that wasn't that wasn't my, my doing at all but you could see you could see how it had moved on and I think that it's um, it indicates how good the authors are I, I may have mentioned to you I don't know if on podcast or off that one of the criticisms made of some of the n- new new authors let me not say new authors, let's say new writers, because we're talking about people who maybe are still in creative writing classes and workshops who have not necessarily been published. But there's a tendency for them to so imitate the authors they admire that they imitate everything, including the context, even even the the atmosphere and the environment. So you end up having contemporary people writing sort of plantation narratives and immigration narratives when the people who are writing about immigration were the ones for whom it was a contemporary thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying they, they all do that, but there's there's still this sense of, well, you know, I'm imitating this particular author and this is what he wrote about, so I'm going to write something like that. And I do very much like seeing um, both Broadbur and Forbes more Broadbur, taking that and actually sort of just springboarding a little bit. You know, she's she's sort of 
um, Broadway goes very much from plantation to, as you say, present perhaps, uh-huh. future perhaps. And Forbes goes from village again to future and, and shows you that narratives are never stagnant. Right. There's always there's always there's always a way for the story to evolve. So, you know, yes, we still have the villages and yes, we still have the relatives overseas, but there's more stories to tell. There's there's more stuff going on. There's there's new and interesting stuff going on. There's stuff we can't imagine that's even beyond what we're seeing right now. And that's the bit I find exciting. That's that's why for me ghost is very much a an uptick, a nice place to end because it's like, aha. See? See you've got you've got, you know, you're you're actually going off the planet now. The whole the whole universe is ahead of you. Yeah, but okay. So let me. So there's one way in which I'm a little dissatisfied with that narrative as it applies to ghosts, and that's mm-hmm. because Dwarf Child is such a radical break. Yeah, yeah, it's such a radical break with all that's come before. It's a radical break in the narrative, which you and I both admitted was that that break was a little rough to read mm-hmm. and it was a little rough to bridge mm-hmm. and it also it felt like it didn't offer much in the way of hope for our lived reality moving forward because if we don't have a radical break like that it, it almost seems to say well maybe we're still gonna be mired in the in the village and in the past and in the family trauma but you know the radical break isn't a new thing for Caribbean literature either. I should have pointed out that oh, the okay. radical break of immigration led on from the village. If you read Lamings in the Castle of My Skin, it starts off in the village, and and the break is when he he actually goes overseas. So there is very much this sense of um, you can stay in the village, you can stay in you know. I don't know if you've ever read A Hundred Years of Solitude. I have. Not read 100 Years of Solitude. I'm just finishing up Love in the Time of, Time of Cholera. Okay, okay. Well, they're, they're very much, there's this village setting, and the and the, the feeling you get in this village is that it's, it's almost timeless. There's this vague sense of, yes, technology is changing a little bit, but you have people with the same names and almost the same problems, and there just seems to be the cycle, and, and the only way people break the cycle is if they just leave. And sometimes even when they leave, they get sucked back in. <laughs> so, so, so in a way, the village... The village um, narrative, which is not only a Caribbean um, story, um, does seem to require that you gotta get out of the small town, or you're never gonna make it. You know. You know okay, so I re- really randomly I read a, a book called Galore. It's con- it's uh, written just in the last few years, but it's set in historical Newfoundland, mm-hmm. and it had that very same sense, except instead of going, okay, you have to get out of here. Literally, everybody who got out of the small town in Newfoundland, mm-hmm. something awful happened to them. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, yeah, it was pretty much like, oh, don't bother trying to get back to Europe. Uh-uh, it's not worth it. Oh. You know, there's that big, scary world out there, and you might, you should probably just stay here. Well, ooh, well, when you mention it like that, the definitely the immigration narrative is not a you get out and then things are rosy and marvelous because that's not at all what happens either. I think no, it's just the sense of adventure, something different. Even if even if it makes you return with a different view, well, that's me, important. Let's follow this a little further because with Galore, um, I, I wrote a review of it for Strange Horizons. If anybody's curious, but the POV. The point of view never follows the character that leaves. The POV is, well, okay, it does once, but only at the end. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stand by my argument. Um, 
it, it never follows the person who leaves. It always stays fixed solidly in, on these small fishing towns. And mm-hmm. so you get, you get that there's a person who leaves and your attention stays in Newfoundland. And when they come back, they are broken. Uh, okay, okay. So and, it's not like And everyone have, comes back. Um, either dies or comes back. <laughs> and dies in some horrible way. Um, not necessarily horrible. I mean, because it is written in the night. You know, it's uh, focused mostly in the nineteenth century. So, for instance, there might be a person who immigrated to make their fortune, and then they want to go back to England to either wrap up something, or, for instance, maybe to find a spouse for their offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody's society, and you know, maybe they're just lost in a in a ship shipwreck. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, and then, so the yeah. idea is that. Outside is dangerous. It, exactly. it may not always break you, but it will get you in the end. Yeah, so. the, there was that feeling about it. Now, now well, it didn't. It did not at all whitewash the the village life in Newfoundland. It was hard. Mm-hmm. It was a, a very rough place. I was reading it while I was pregnant, and it goes into so many ways that pregnancy goes horribly wrong <laughs> with only nineteenth primitive rural nineteenth century medicine at your disposal. Oh, oh it was. <sighs> Bracing. Yes. <laughs> so it wasn't sugarcoating anything, but, but there was that feeling that, that if you left, you know, things would, would perhaps go badly. Mm-hmm. It's, I find that fascinating from the point of view that, in a, in a way, those who fail to leave or those who wish not to leave do almost need a narrative of justification for staying. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that's, another, that's another type of story as well. It's all confirmation bias, you know. If you if you go, if you stay, you're gonna find danger everywhere. <laughs> right, right. Which which actually does lead me a little bit. Um, one thing I realized after we talked about ghosts, I remember I we'd been talking a little bit about the uh, the fluid POV shifts in in Beatrice's chapter. Yes, and mm. I I realized that 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 was probably indicative of the fact that Mitch and Beatrice probably had the most rocky relationship. Ah, so you feel as if Mitch corrected more of Beatrice's stuff? Yeah, that's my feeling. Or that they were, maybe, that they were probably, not warring would be too, but there was a push-pull, there was more tension there. Right, right. Now Evangeline, they said she she told her story to Mitch and then she didn't edit it after. She didn't look yeah, at it Yeah, trust, after. total trust. There, yeah. there was just a trust there. And mm-hmm. Mitch claimed she set it down totally, you know, Without edit, you know, with with only the lightest editing, mm-hmm. but with with Beatrice and Mitch, you, I, there's that undercurrent of, well, this is what I say, well, but this is what happened, this is what I <laughs> yes. say, you know, you get more of a a sisterly mm-hmm. tension there. And then, of course, the fantastic thing that you noticed from last time is that Peaches is the far end of the spectrum where she's like, no, you're not putting your words on this at all. This is all my story. It's all this me. is all my Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But, but it's kind of interesting because <clears throat> the, the storyteller or the author is in a way in tension with the characters to tell their story accurately. Yeah, yeah. So, well, maybe I'm being a little too mystical here. Well, no, because it, for, it foregrounds it more, you know, much more than than your average literature does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's well, you know, I I find that 
ghosts, as you say, you didn't necessarily wrap your arms all the way around it. I, yeah, but it's the that. one you keep returning to, and I do find that fascinating. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's the critic brain, isn't it? It's like middle yep. halter. It's like you know, there's I I understand that, and there's not a ton more to say. I like I say, I think that is the the has the least depth of of your set. Um, Rainmaker's mistake. I really do feel like I'm like, yeah, okay, no, I I got that. Yeah, no, that was awesome. And, and <laughs> ghosts, I I am still working through. I won't lie. And and you and I have both come to realize that I think by talking, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But I'm relieved that it is it was sufficiently palatable for you to desire to continue to work through it mm-hmm. as opposed to other works. Um, some that I've run across where you're just like, you know what? That's too complicated and I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm just going to move on from it. And I won't lie. So, you know, I, I often end up reviewing short fiction. It, it seems to be what's become a little bit of my stock and trade as a reviewer. And when I have a big collection and I've read through all these stories and there are a few that just, I'm like, wow, I have no idea what you were doing there. Maybe, <laughs> especially if I only have a thousand words, I'll just mm-hmm. leave those out. Yep, yep, yep. And maybe no one will call me on it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yep. Mm-hmm. But but one thing that was interesting is that all all three of the Caribbean selections had very well-defined narrators. Yes. Um, even when and there I'm were glad you noticed that. Even mm-hmm. when there were multiple narrators. And mm-hmm. much more than, say, you know, Egan has a lot of just sort of free-floating narrators. Yes. I think that there's a very strong sense of character. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can't have the story without the storyteller. Yes, yes. And, and I, I noticed you also said, and this kind of warmed the cockles of my heart, <laughs> that the language, the rhythm of the language is another important thing. Which is, of course, again, connected to the story because it, the rhythm changes as the character changes. Right, completely. And sometimes, sometimes the way you know that somebody else is, is sort of speaking in your ear now is because, oh, wait a minute, here's, here's this rhythm change, you know, here's this difference. And I like that so much. And I realize as I read more and more Caribbean literature that there are quite a lot of authors who have that facility. It is almost, um, I don't want to say a requirement, but it is an expected part of your toolkit as a Caribbean author to be able to play with multiple voices in a way that's, that's just very, very skillful. I do miss that in some genre fiction. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get, if you read epic fantasy or, you know, um, there's also such a thing as epic SF, you'll, some space operas are structured this way. You get the mm-hmm. massively multi-person point of view. Yes, yes. And, you know, so every chapter's got a different voice to it, and, yeah, that's, that's fun. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. none of them seem as focused, or... And, and I don't think I got a chance to mention this in some of the other. I have a weakness for the really opinionated third-person omniscient narrator. Ah, (laughs) it's one of the things I loved about Redemption and Indigo I won't lie Uh and there's Mm -hmm. another science fiction story um, called The Wreck of the River of Stars by Michael Flynn it's my favorite Michael Flynn I love the title already (laughs) yeah oh man this this book is just it it is literally you are watching a train wreck Um, (laughs) it is 
there's it's solar system fiction. There's a ship called the River of Stars, mm-hmm. otherwise known as Rivi, um, <laughs> and she's got sixteen crew crew on her, and things start to go horribly wrong, and the crew cannot pull it together. Okay, all their personalities just conflict, and so they keep making things worse and worse and worse. And the whole thing has this omniscient narrator that just goes, look how bad they're screwing up. Look how they're gonna mess Uh it up now. I mean, the narrator, I think of the narrator snarky. Record the River of Stars, from what I've seen, people either love it or they hate it. I gotta read that now. I really do. <laughs> I, I love that. I was actually about to say that one of the strengths of the Sparrow is that she does do the multiple voice thing in a way where they do all stand out very, very clearly with their own different characters. Right, but the narrator is still distant. Well, there isn't really... Is there really a narrator in the Sparrow? I mean, the story is like a ball that gets passed from person to person, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's loosely third-person limited... Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the narrator doesn't have a particular point of view. Right. I mean, right. you can you can feel the hand of the author um, pacing things, mm-hmm. especially in the interweaving chapters between the present and the past. You you can feel how she's shaping the revelations. For instance, the timing. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But but there isn't that kind of narr- you know storyteller who is both telling you what's happening and perhaps offering a little commentary on the side. There's there's nothing like that. Well, do you know, it's interesting you mention that because now that I'm thinking about it, I felt as if, yes, it's, it's definitely, you know, third, third person, omniscient, sh- shifting points of view and so forth. But, <coughs> sorry, when you looked at the, the future chapters, the, the whole interweaving, the ones that had the future... Very much more focused on Emilio. Oh, he's the only one left, isn't he? But yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, say again? He's the only one left, isn't he? That's true. But I mean, I mean, in the sense of, well, okay, no, hold it. Hold it, hold it. No, I'm talking nonsense. Because, no, everybody's focused on Emilio. They're all observing him, both the past and the future. Everything is focused around him. Everything is other people talking about, and this is how I encountered Father Emilio. This was my encounter with him. So every person that encounters him tells it as their story. And then the only time you really hear him talking is when he's actually in this sort of semi-inquisition and and speaks to these people about what happened, confesses to them what happened. No, no, that's... I I don't agree. Um, Especially once you're on the planet... Mm-hmm. You get lots of things that aren't necessarily about him. For instance, uh, Anne's relationship with different people, mm-hmm. uh, D.W. Yarbrough's relationship with different people. You, you get some things that aren't just him. And also in the in the past section, you do get him talking, for instance, to Anne about why he can't get Sophia to like him. Well, he talks to Anne about it, but it's almost Anne's point of view on his having these difficulties of Sophia and, and then the advice that she gives him. No, you're, you're right. He is the thread that binds the whole story together. No doubt about that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating because it's all, it's all about different ways to tell a story, especially when you have, as you say, either multiple storytellers or multiple points of view or, or hmm. I think, phew, boy. I think the trick is still that strong character can carry it, but you definitely also like strong voice. 
Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm all about so, strong voice. Okay, so, now wait. I say I love strong voice. Let's back up to the other extreme. Ted Chang. Okay. Who's, mm-hmm. who's the storyteller of Hell is the Absence of God? Oh, uh, well, that one is, yeah. <laughs> the narrator is very abstracted in that short story, but it's brilliant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, is there any, even, even any dialogue in that story? <laughs> well, it's, it is a sort of a, a cool narration, but there's a hint of, there's a hint of, I don't quite want to say playfulness because it, it does deal with very serious things and people die and people, you know, are damned eternally and so forth. But there is... It's, it's the playfulness of a cat, in a way. It's that... It, Terry Pratchett type of cat, the one that's like an elf that will play with its food. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, he's not he. Then the narrator is sort of lining up these things and going, okay, well, you know, if your abstract philosophy means this, then this person's going to suffer. <laughs> ah, there you go. There you go. No, no, here's an interesting thing. I would say for Ted Chiang that the character is 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 pretty strong but the voice is not necessarily as strong right the so, voice fades into the background to promote the idea and the only major exception i see to that is um exhalation where right. the voice is integral to the discovery that is the theme of the story Yes, yes. I still, I still get these geek out moments where I picture this person like an exploded diagram, having just dissected his brain and unfolded it. I just oh, love that bit. Isn't that the best scene ever? I think that scene can just stand for all of science fiction for all, all time, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I would seen... love to see somebody put that on the screen. Um, have you ever seen the... Uh, I don't know if it ever travels to, to where you are, but um, there's an exhibit called... Um, bodies or bodies in motion or something like that there's this guy who uh preserves corpses in a plastified way and he can actually make exploded diagrams of humans with real I have, humans i've i've heard about it i'm sure I've, I've seen it on probably bbc's news website or something i actually got a chance to see it in person in chicago okay a few years ago and it is exactly as creepy and as awesome as you would think <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh, yes, yes. But yeah, exhalation, the voice, the voices of the narrators, integral. Yes. And by the way, I don't want to make it sound as if, as an author, you absolutely have to have every little piece of this lined up. There's some stories where you want the voice to take a step back. There's some stories where you want the characters to, you know, maybe be a little more in the background because you have other things that are very much more in the foreground to highlight. So we're not saying there's a right or a wrong way. We're really more talking about what strikes us for a story, when it works really well for a story, and also what we like as, as our preference as readers. Absolutely. And and it it really is the need of the story, isn't it? I mean, you mm-hmm. we saw in reading Ted Chang's collection how many different ways to tell stories there are yes heck even in uh, rainmaker's mistake you have all these chapters from the different people's um point of view you have um the girl you have luke you have matilda all all trying to wrap their their arms around the story that they're living Mm -hmm. you know trying and trying many different ways to understand it but they all add to our enrichment yes yes Hmm. 
I hold on, hold on. You haven't asked me what I got out of the, the three books, you, the three authors you assigned to me. Oh, true that, true that. <laughs> well, I already mentioned the the surprise of finding that the philosophical, religious um, questions came very much to the fore. But the other thing that I found very, very strongly that was fascinating is that it pinned down for me personally, at least, what the definition of hard SF could be. <laughs> And I'd always just thought of it as the concept of you take, um, be it a, a theory or a, a particular feat of engineering or what have you, and you portray that as faithfully as you can in the, in the, in the context of a story, drawing consequences and so forth that are perfectly in line with the actual scientific theory or engineering setup or what have you. But the other thing that I hadn't considered is that the accurate depiction of the scientific community, one, and the scientific process, two, can also contribute to what I would call hard SF. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I mean, that it, to my understanding of hard SF, that's critical mm-hmm. to the field's understanding of hard SF, if I could be so bold as to characterize the field, air quotes, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it's less critical. There's, there's one way of understanding hard SF that says hard SF is what you read in an analog magazine. Okay. And I didn't have you read darn near anything that was or would be published in analog magazine. Um, one thing that I found in, incredibly interesting is that Egan only had one story in analog uh, mm-hmm. I think in the late 80s or early 90s, um, he was not, he, he didn't, he didn't develop the kind of relationship with Stan Schmidt that he did with Gardner Dozois and David Pringle at Enderzone and Asimov's. Okay. Um, in fact, he actually got rejected from Analog a few times. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's kind of fascinating because most people now would say Egan is the hardest hard SF writer writing in the field, but Mm. there's that dichotomy between what Egan does and what analog does. And analog is very much what you describe. They dramatize a scientific or an engineering problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and analog's the most successful officially of the, of the print magazines uh, for fiction, science fiction, short stories that still exist. Um, Mm -hmm. Their subscription level has, declined but much more slowly than the other magazines mm-hmm. there's a core audience that loves what they do but they do the same thing over and over and they have for 30 years and it does strike me that depending on what particular problem is being dramatized there are always going to be readers who are not going to be able to access it yes and most of those readers have dropped analog by now <laughs> um <laughs> Egan has gone the other way. He is getting harder with time. I believe his readership has dropped dropped off with time as well, which is unfortunate. But he's evolving in a lot of interesting ways that I think the haven't necessarily been apparent to people who've just been kind of casually watching. Okay, go on. It's... I feel like the dominant narrative of Egan is Egan is 
the hardest SF writer. He writes um, math and physics based SF. He's going off the deep end when it comes to <laughs> how much math and physics he's loading into all the stories. And he exemplifies the kind of science fiction that sacrifices character on the altar of idea. Okay. I don't believe that's true. Um, he is getting, he is obviously getting harder in the math and physics that there's mm -hmm. no, you, you can't wiggle your way out of that one. But I actually think that his understanding of characterization has improved. Ah. And it, I believe it's improved markedly in the orthogonal trilogy. None of this mm -hmm. will show up in the stories that you and I actually read and talked about. <laughs> it will show <laughs> yes. up in my book that will someday be published. So it sounds to me as if gone. I really do have to read his novels. I believe that the... Well, the thing is, he his career started in short fiction. And mm -hmm. then there's a time in the 90s when he's writing amazing short fiction and he starts picking up novels. And now he writes novels and very, very rare short fiction. Okay. Um, so all the progress that he's made in the last 10 years has largely come in novels, not in short fiction. Well, I have a question for you. To what extent would you say that even though as, as you said, the stuff's getting getting more hard. SF is, he's he's he's. This, I mean, he's basically creating pages of of this is the science behind the story kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You told me that on his website, he will actually guide you through the formulae and the. Oh yeah, and he's got great diagrams and illustrations and animations right. and everything. Now the the thing I'm wondering if you're saying at the same time his characterization is improving. I'm wondering if what we're seeing is that although it's getting um, more hard, that bit is actually becoming more of the the foundation of the story and not necessarily the the, the display bit of the story. So you you are finding a point where people can find it more accessible because they can happily ignore the hard SF bit if they wish. I argue that you can. A lot of people argue right back that they can't. <laughs> and more than I know, I'm not going to tell anyone that they're reading it wrong. Okay. Um, for instance, the first time I read Clockwork Rocket, mm -hmm. I won't lie, I skimmed. I skimmed a lot of the, of the physics and, and focused on the story. Mm. And it wasn't until I had to write the, the chapter where I really dig into the science that I went back and really worked through what you know what the what the implications were what he was really doing with the physics right and and i'm saying this as a person with a bachelor's degree in pure <laughs> physics yes um and i felt that there was enough interesting character and societal based story mm -hmm. in fact i was fascinated by what he was doing with the character and societal based story i felt they were much better integrated in Clockwork Rocket than they had been in Incandescence or even one of my um, favorite SF novels or um, favorite Egan novels, Distress. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really tough. He's advancing his craft on so many levels and some people, I, I'm almost sorry because some people are going to bail out because they just can't they have no desire to read that much straight physics. 
and right. I feel like they're missing out on on his development as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll, I'll edit I, this bit out. Maybe, maybe this will help. Maybe this is related to your idea. Would you, in terms of ranking and um, hard, hard, to, hard to soft. That sounds wrong. But degree of hardness of SF for the three books. Would you agree, Egan, Chang, um, Mary Doria Russell? Well, there t- the problem is that there are two axes, and hard could be used on both of them. One means accurate to inaccurate, and one means physics to sociology. Ah, well put, well put, yes. And I, th- I think that, for instance, Mary Doria Russell is completely, is, has a lot of accuracy when it comes to sociology. Yes, mm-hmm. And as as and it is much as sociology has a, a scale of accuracy at all. But yes, go ahead. Right, and and to that extent, I mean, that's one of the axes where I feel that Egan's been improving, but he's never going to be that strong. Well, mm-hmm. uh, he has not yet to date been as strong on the um, sociology end. Yeah, sociology and economics are just I, those are real fields that have real rigor to them that he tends mm-hmm. not to dabble in. I think he's getting better but he's certainly nowhere near where Russell is. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the focus of, you know, uh, does she care more about the physics than the sociology? Of course not. She's, she's <laughs> on the sociology end, um, and then you're right, on that axis, it, it's Egan at the top, and then Chang, and then, and then Russell. But when it comes to actual rigor, I think they're all pretty well up there. Cool. No, this is this is important. This is important to consider because we did talk about the possible sort of snobbery towards the so-called soft sciences. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it is important to mention that. I I bring it up because we do have another area of genre that does deal with sociology, and that's fantasy. Whenever you're world building, mm-hmm. you do have to really really know a bit about. You know, we have we have sociologists, we have anthropologists who do their world building, or for that matter, even, even to a certain extent, a linguist, because, because of, if, you're, if you're dealing with linguistics across an area and different um, evolutions of different dialects and so forth, even that can give you some sort of framework on which to understand how, uh, how different peoples are going to vary and how, and, and how you can portray that in, in a book. But um, we have, unfortunately, a fantasy genre that for some time really was just piggybacking off the work of a lot of other people Mm -hmm. in terms of of how a world is built. And also piggybacking off of the stereotypes of mythology, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dwarfs are sort of way out to a certain way kind of thing. Um, so, So you kind of have to be... Even even fantasy and even the world building of fantasy does not necessarily handle sociology with the rigor that you could get in a really good hard SF novel. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. A lot of epic fantasy that I tend to dislike <laughs> <laughs> uh, skims over skims over the that kind of rigor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good. So, we're gonna, are we going to have people quarreling with us for our definition of what constitutes hard SF? I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> you sound 
so sure of yourself. I love it. <laughs> well, no, no offense, but I, I, I feel like I've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of hard SF <laughs> at this point. Um, uh-huh. Now, I think... Now, it could possibly be controversial to pull Ted Chang into hard SF, because if you think of 72 letters... Yes. It's Kabbalistic magic. What do you mean it's hard SF? Because the scientific process is what features, just as it features an exhalation. Exactly. It's the process. Um, mm-hmm. Once he defines a world with a certain set of universal rules, he plays within those rules with, with complete honesty and rigor. Yeah, you mentioned this at ICFA, didn't you, when you were talking about Dal Gregory's work? Mm-hmm. In fact, I think I... What was it? It was Dal Gregory's... Um, Pandemonium? Pandemonium, thank you. Uh, 72 letters and... Did I manage to throw an Egan in there? Was it safe deposit box? Or... <laughs> yeah, but but I was talking about fantasies that, that treat their fantasy rigorously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the way, if we ever want to read Daryl Gregory's uh, collection, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we should... Now, I, I know there have been some, some calls for already for a second season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got deadlines, people. We, we both have deadlines. The Locust Roundtable blog has been sadly suffering in my absence. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but I would love to, to tackle something like that maybe next year. I think it would be worthwhile to do that. And I like the idea of having that kind of break for things to settle. To tell the truth, I don't know what I expected out of this podcasting experience, but I have to say it's given me more than I expected. Oh, good, good. Mostly. <laughs> Maybe like you, I, I, I talk and I think. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so I, I, have, I have this new understanding, this better appreciation, really, for, for what people are trying to do with the, with the, the traditions of their genre, and uh, and also trying to to evolve those traditions to to some sort of new contemporary space, so that it's you're always building. You're not just not just repeating the old. You're always building. So I want to I want to take a little time to take these new theories, mm-hmm. this this new this new structure in my head, let it settle a bit. I've oh. got things to write myself. Sorry, you saying? Well, and and one thing I'm I'm also really <laughs> proud of is that I I feel like. With with all confidence in the world, if people ask me, you know, gosh, I don't know, will I be able to read some of this Caribbean speculative fiction that you've been talking about? <laughs> I'll be able to say, well, do you like Kelly Link? Because yes. then, yes, you will have no problem with this at all. <laughs> to tell the truth, I was just so happy when you when you kind of connected with it that on that level because I was like, yes, yes, of course, and <clears throat> and I think it's important because. Okay, of course I'm going to champion the Caribbean literature, but you know we've got we've got other uh, we've got other nationalities out there. We've got other languages out there, and we do have to stop thinking of it as as another universe in a way of 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 speculative fiction. There, I think that any time you are willing to, as you say, enter into the the slipstream, even enter into the weird fiction and so forth. You are already in the kind of headspace that will allow you to step into a different culture and a different literary tradition. Yeah, and yeah. try to tackle that. 
Yeah, there shouldn't be any reason why anybody who enjoys, you know, weird tales under Anne Vandermeer or the weird collection from from the Vandermeers, or or anything from Kelly Link shouldn't should have any hesitation from jumping into some of this international literature. And and we're really sort of almost saying the obvious here because when you look at the work of the Vandermeers, especially in their recent anthology, award-winning anthology, The Weird, Mm -hmm. and when you look at the works published by Small Bear Press, which is, of course, um, Kelly Kelly Link is is the sort of co-publisher of that. Right, Kelly Link and Gavin Grant. They they are very much into international international specter fiction, international literature, because they are already able to move into that kind of worldview and and see that there is some good stuff there. Well, and I'd also like to shout out to uh, Nick Mamadas, who's editing a, a line called um, Haikasoru, um, which which brings some Japanese SF back to an American oh. audience. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that out there that I, I think people are perhaps a little intimidated by, mm-hmm. and I don't think mm-hmm. they need to be. Um, yes. Ideally, genre fiction, be it fantasy or science fiction, should uh, give you the tools that you need to, to break out of whatever your lived reality is and experience lived reality from somebody else also on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, <clears throat> I have to confess that I know that there is a corner of genre fiction, which is basically cozy fiction. Cozy, right, right. probably used incorrectly, but what I'm using it to mean is you know what is going to happen next. You know the particular structure and, and format for this type of story, and you don't expect to deviate. Right. So right. so if you are very much, uh, this is the particular structure and format of story that I like with these types of characters and this type of outcome, yeah, <laughs> then then you're, you're probably not going to, to stretch yourself so much for this one. But you should try nevertheless, because it's a marvelous world out there. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, and you'll just, yeah, I mean, I've, I've gained so much, I feel, through through reading international fiction and then Caribbean fiction specifically over these last few months. Excellent. Um, now, have we, have we wrapped, have we wrapped up what, what you feel you've gotten from, from the hard SF selections? Do you feel like we've closed the loop on that? I believe that I have. Um, I would, I would just, as I say, I'm going to take some time and let this percolate. I do look forward to season two. I don't know. I don't know if anybody, um, We've, we've already had a couple of suggestions for what we could do. <laughs> Just bear in mind that if, if we're doing it, we're again going to limit it to probably about eight episodes again, right? That, that seemed to work well. We could even maybe try and do it in six. Although, because I, I feel a little bad because I know we took an episode and a half to, to discuss Chang and then... Ah, right, yeah. kind of to discuss things. Egan. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. limit, I'll, I'll choose things a little more judiciously now that I know the pattern of how we <laughs> discuss things. Well, okay, we'll still, we'll still probably choose six authors, in other words. Yeah, if we, yeah, that, that seemed to work well. Okay, okay. I, I must say that um, I, because I narrowed my choices to Caribbean speculative fiction, I may not necessarily come up again with Caribbean speculative fiction, but I'm still going to very much be dabbling in stuff like, um, I guess you could say myth and aspects of both science fiction and fantasy blurring together. 
Um, I seem to I seem to have an affinity for that type of literature, and that's the sort of stuff I enjoy as a reader. So that's very likely what I would end up choosing. You know, one of the books that would be awesome, except I think it's it's to be fair, it's just a little too long. Um, is uh, the Wizard and the Crow by? Um, oh gosh, I'm going to mangle his name so badly. Ngugi <laughs> Wationgo. He's a writer from Kenya. I have not heard. What what year are we looking at? What publication year? That uh, that was in the nineties. He's since he um, he was in jail in Kenya for a long time, and he's since immigrated to the United States. Is my understanding? Okay, so but what he published? He published while he was in the U.S. or in Kenya. I want to say while he was in Kenya. <laughs> but you're not sure. He, he no wrote problem. it. He wrote it in in another language and did his did the English translation himself. Okay, cool. Uh, no, I always find that fascinating. You know the whole yeah, that's question of what. Whew. Yeah. I mean, uh, Zoran Zivkovic, who's another favorite author of mine, he's Serbian. He is fluent in both languages, but he lists an English translator who helps him. Mm, so he, okay. he composes in Serbian and then has another translator bring it into English, and then he, he kind of checks it over. Okay, okay. I'll tell you what, I would love, I mean... I don't know how we're going to structure our season two. I'm not necessarily suggesting that we bring on anybody because we, we have such a sort of tight schedule sort of slipping in between our deadlines. I know, yeah. But in terms of suggesting what other people can do, what other podcasts can do, mm. I would love to hear from the translators out oh, there. Oh, yeah. The SF translators, please. If anybody feels podcast ready... You will have at least one listener. <laughs> well, and, so, and let me tell you, so if you mm-hmm. Ted Chang and Greg Egan are both very, very popular, translated into Japanese and also a lot of um, Southern and Eastern European languages. Now, that is interesting. I'm always fascinated at, at authors who are popular in particular regions. I've heard that Terry Pratchett does very well in Poland for some reason. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Egan and Cheng um, dominate the Seiyun Translated Awards pretty often. Wow, okay, in, in okay. Japan. And then um, I notice uh, Egan especially gets frequently translated into the Eastern European languages. Now, that's exactly the kind of stuff I would want to hear about from a translation podcast. Not only what international works are coming into English or should come into English, but also what works are winning awards when they're translated into other languages than English. Because it would be it would be fascinating to see what's got global appeal. Yeah, 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 definitely. That would be fascinating. <sighs> yes. So I cannot think of anything else to add except to say that yeah, this has been a really cool experience. Yeah, this has just been fun. I I I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we um, I, I I believe that that we will easily be talked into doing a second season. Uh, I equally believe that that will be next year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, another thing that we've talked about doing is before we start, quote unquote, season two, we might do a, uh, you know, once we've had a few months to, to digest and integrate and percolate, we might uh, circle back and see, you know, how we feel about what we've read in a few months time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we might do that and then yeah if people have suggestions for the something they'd like to see us cover please get in touch either comments on this or or by email yes. or twitter we're both on twitter <laughs> yes <laughs> 
although I've been working Twitter way more than I've been posting to it since uh, I tend to check Twitter while I'm giving Gavin his bottle in the morning. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can do that with one hand. Yes. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, uh, thanks to everybody for uh, sticking with yes. us. And um, I know that uh, uh, special thanks for those who stuck with the Caribbean SF because those were not familiar authors. Those were not familiar titles. And I was very happy to see that there are people who are willing to to give those a chance. Absolutely. And and if we've boosted anyone's sales through this podcast, all for the better. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Okay, well, we will wrap it up for this season and we will see you guys in, oh my goodness, 2013. 2013. Happy reading.